0: All of us from uh, time to time can use a little direction, some guidance, wise counsel. Uh, Sometimes, however, the direction is not as clear as we'd like it to be, or we get a mixed message at best. One of my favorite stories is told, in light of the rising frequency of human versus bear conflicts, the British Columbia Department of Fish and Wildlife is advising hikers, skiers, hunters, and fishermen to take extra precautions, and all others to keep alert for bears while in the woods says, we advise that those pursuing activities in the outdoors should wear noisy little bells on their clothing so as not to startle bears that are not expecting them. We also advise recreationalists to carry pepper spray with them in case of an encounter with a bear. It's also good, a good idea to watch out for fresh signs of bear activity in the woods. Recreationalists should be able to recognize the difference between black bear dung and grizzly bear dung. Black bear dung is smaller and contains a lot of berries and small animal fur like squirrels and rabbits. Grizzly bear dung has little bells in it and smells like pepper. (laughs) I'm not sure what the the message is, but uh, I'm grateful that uh, God is a lot clearer and He's not so vague in the message that He conveys to us. In our ongoing study of the book of Acts, Uh, we come to a passage of Scripture that clearly illustrates the truth that man plans, but God directs. The Bible tells us that man plans his ways, but God directs his steps. If you've got your Bibles, open with me to uh, Acts chapter 1. As we look at this truth that's conveyed for us in this particular passage, man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. In Acts chapter 1, we pick up the account on verse 12, and we read this. Says Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Says And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and Philip and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers." It says, and at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his portion in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. says and it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language the field was called the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no man dwell in it, and his office let another man take. It is therefore necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. It says, and they put forward two men, Joseph called Bersabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, you know the hearts of men. Show which one of these two that you have chosen, and to accompany this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. It says And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. One of the most amazing and reassuring truths that's taught in the Bible is that God works His will through men. You know, His His providential control over all circumstances uh, takes into consideration even all the acts of human wills, even those opposed to Him. You know, the Bible's filled with clear illustrations of this truth. If you go back from the pharaohs and the evil kings, and even in this particular passage where we're going to learn of Judas and his betrayal of Christ, we learn that even those with free will all of us even the free will of men cannot thwart the purposes of God and in fact God uses humans to accomplish his purposes and bring about uh, his divine plan you know a graphic illustration of that I found as I was reading through and doing some research on it was that the battle cry of Gideon's army in Judges 7 20 says that a sword for the Lord and for Gideon you know a sword for the Lord and for Gideon Man working side by side with God to accomplish the the, uh, providential uh, plans of God. The will of God fulfilled even through the free will of men, even those who oppose Him. You know, it's fascinating in Exodus, God used a combination of components to part the Red Sea and allow Israel to cross. He used His own supernatural powers. He used an east wind. He used Moses striking of the waters with a stick. And what's fascinating to me is even in God's work of redemption, and uh, he has called certain men to go into the world for significant participation, to gather all of the elect. He has chosen men to finish the work that Jesus began, which we've been talking about in the last couple of messages. But the reality of all of it is, is and in fact, Jesus reminded them in John 15:16, he said, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you. Peter picks up on this in the book of Acts. Turn with me to the 10th chapter just to, to make a point as far as God's choosing and man's free will. But in Acts chapter 10, verse 39, listen to the words as Peter describes both God's sovereign choice of the apostles and the mission for which God sent them forth. In Acts 10, 39, he says, And we are witnesses of all the things he did, speaking of Jesus, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, and they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he should become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Remember in Acts 1, by many convincing proofs, Jesus convinced them that he truly was the Christ, the Savior of the world, the risen Savior. It says, of him all the prophets bear witness, that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. As we've learned, God has given man the resources necessary to complete the work that Jesus did not finish as far as reaching the world with the message of God's love, the message of sin, the message of judgment, the message of alienation of mankind from God. Uh, the reconciliation plan that God has to bring man and God back together again or man with God and that He's chosen to send His only Son into the world to die on behalf of those sufficient for all but only applicable to those who would believe. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The reality of the fact that God has given us the resources necessary to complete the task that Jesus began. We, we understand the message that we're to share with the world, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And we understand that. And we also realize that not only does God give us the resources that we need, but God is very But but, um, carefully, it's pointed out that God also has certain people that he has chosen to share that message. And in this particular case, as we look at this, we understand that Judas, who had committed suicide, which we'll discuss, was no longer counted among the 12 that Jesus had chosen. And so it was time to replace that one with another to fill his spot so that there would be 12, as we will see in a a minute. There's a reason for that. But he also is very careful to choose the men that he had chosen to go out and spread the message that I just shared a moment ago. So in a, a, I guess, a, a summation of what we're going to be looking at, I want to kind of break it up into just three parts. The first thing that we're going to look at has to do with the idea of the submission of the disciples that we're going to see here in a second. We'll look at the suicide of a disciple. And then the third thing is we'll look at a selection of a replacement of that particular person. So the first thing we're going to look at is found in verses 12 through 15. It has to do with the submission that we see of the disciples. The submission of the disciples is found in verses 12 through 15 where we read and understand that Jesus had commanded them, instructed them before his ascension for them to wait in Jerusalem for divine power. And in fact, you remember in verse 8, he says, you shall receive power, the word dunamis, so we translate our English word dynamite. He's saying that you shall wait for the power that's to come, that you're going to receive power by the coming of the Holy Spirit, the dynamite of God, the, the, everything that we need to live a supernatural life that God will supply for us. He says, you're to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. It was important that we recognize and understand that they were told to wait because Jesus had already told them that the Spirit would not come until Jesus had ascended and returned back to His Father, and that the Father would send the Spirit at some point in time after Jesus' ascension. So they were told to go and wait Don't go into the world with a message. Don't do anything on your own. Don't get so excited about it. Just wait right here and do what I tell you to do. In an obedience and submission to the Lord's command, the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the place we see here uh, of the Ascension, which is the Mount of Olivet, and they waited. You know, this whole idea of just the fact that they waited. And I was out for a run yesterday, and I was just thinking about this and praying about it and saying, you know what, Lord, I mean, you, you told them to wait, and they did. And we can just go so quickly over that without really appreciating the significance of it, because as I don't, as a man, I'm going to be up front here. I'm not a very patient guy. Now I know that that's unique; that most men are very patient. And uh, but so I'm just—it's a public confession. and, And Linda reminds me every time we get in the car. Uh, you know, it's kind of like, and I'm thinking about it, it's like, you know, there's 75 cars that are coming and I think I can make it across six lanes of traffic. I think we're going to be okay and I love that little middle lane we have here in California, you know, the one that's like, you know, the safe haven uh, until somebody else goes to get it at the same time that you do and then there's some confusion. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, I don't like to wait and I think about the guys that that he asked to wait. I mean, think about this for a minute. Immediately, James and John came to mind. I was out running, I was, I was, I was praying about it going, man, you know what? James and John, the sons of thunder, you told them to wait. There was one point in, in the Jesus ministry that James and John were with him and Jesus was sharing with the crowd and the multitudes that were there were not receiving Jesus nor his message. And James and John looked at Jesus and said, how about if uh, we call uh, lightning out of heaven and just get rid of these people? <laughs> How's that for a little, you know, like a, you know, we're always looking for a word picture... How's that for a word picture? And I thought, wow, these are the same guys that are sitting now waiting and doing what they were told when not long ago they were like, hey, you know what, let's just, lightning, they're done, let's move on. And it's amazing to me the whole idea that they're sitting and they're waiting. I mean, think about it from a human perspective. How quickly do you think they wanted to go and set the record straight? The world was in opposition to Jesus. The world put him to death. They were all in agreement. They arrested him. They persecuted him. He went through suffering because of it. They crucified him. And they all ran and hid because they were afraid to be identified with Jesus for fear of their life. Now they've seen the risen Christ. They've seen the Lord Jesus Christ. They spent 40 days with him on different occasions as he came and he went. And he talked to them and told them about the kingdom of God the promise of the establishment of God's kingdom upon the face of the earth that Jesus one day will set up the kingdom that he had promised through the prophets and he will take his stand on the, on the mount of all of it just as he left he shall return and how they wanted to just go out and just go in your face and yet they didn't do that they weren't arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God they were waiting and I you know and I can't even begin to express to you what an impact that's making on my life as I realize that man plans his ways but God directs his steps. And how important it is for all of us to be submissive to the will of God in our life. To slow down and stop and seek God's counsel and his direction and his leading. And not be in such a hurry to be doing stuff all the time, but to stop and to consider, God, what is it that you'll have me do? Because if I'm following you, I know I'm going the right way. You know, and we see that oftentimes. We see it especially in churches. It's like, we need to be doing stuff. What's other people doing? We need to be doing. Everybody needs to be doing. We're trying to get programs going, this going, that going. We need to do stuff because other people are doing things. You know what? Maybe other people are doing things because they followed God's leading and God led them to do that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's got to be doing the same thing. It's amazing to me how often we stop and we no longer consider the leading of the, of the Spirit of God in our lives stop and slow down and here were men that one time not long ago said I want to see lightning let's do it and Jesus said no slow down and wait I got a different plan for these people and that's what they did they waited they learned to wait upon the Lord they learned to wait upon his will they learned to wait upon his direction and I think we should as well Three things that I noticed, and and I love the Bible. It's a wealth of information. You read a verse and you go, wow, man, look at all this stuff that's there. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which was where Jesus ascended into heaven. It's near Jerusalem, and we're told it's a Sabbath day's journey away. It's a Sabbath day's journey away. Just in that little bit of information, we realize where they were, where they were going, the place in which they went. That They were at this particular site in the Kidron Valley. The Mount of Olivet is uh, to the east of Jerusalem. It sits about 400 feet above the valley. Jerusalem is a 200-foot elevation. So the Mount of Olivet is certainly not a mountain per se. It's a hill that sits above Jerusalem. So if you're looking at it, you've got a, the, the Mount of Olivet is here, Jerusalem is here, and the Kidron Valley goes in between. And they were to the east of that, a Sabbath day's journey from Jerusalem. So we we know exactly how far they were away. A Sabbath day's journey was about 2,000 cubits. Historically, a Sabbath day's journey meant that in the the exodus, in the wanderings of the people of Israel in the desert, they could not be any further than a half a mile to three-quarters mile roughly or 2,000 cubits from where they set up their tent to how far they had to travel to get into the temple to worship God or the place of worship. So basically what it's, come, what it's come down to historically was uh, a Sabbath day's journey was about a half a mile to three quarter mile journey and that's as far as they could travel. So we know that from the Mount of Olivet to where they went in Jerusalem was only about a half a mile walk or three quarters of a mile walk which would have taken them just inside the walls of the city to a particular place that we're told where they waited. And they were, we were told that they waited in this, and they entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. They went to an upper room, it's identified as the upper room. Probably and most probably the place where the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper took place, the place where they went and they hid after after the crucifixion and prior to the resurrection, the place where Jesus appeared to them behind locked doors in his resurrected and glorified body. So they went to the upper room, a specific place where they met regularly to pray, to praise God, and to encourage one another. Later, we're going to learn that they also devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching or Bible study in this particular place as they gathered together. And uh, as we think about this, they were no longer hiding um, in in private. They went there on regular occasions for the purpose of specifically meeting together because we know in Luke's account in, in chapter 24, verse 53, that they were continually in the temple praising God for what... God had done in the resurrection of Jesus Christ so they no longer were in hiding they no longer were fearful as far as human beings were concerned they were very bold in fact they went out publicly and let people know hey you know what but they didn't go out without the power of the spirit to proclaim the message they went to just praise God and were still waiting for the coming of the spirit to do the work that Jesus said that they were going to do and that's important distinction that we need to recognize now They went to this upper room, a specific place for a specific purpose, which was to praise God, to pray, as we'll learn, to study the Word of God together, to encourage one another, to stimulate one another for love and good deeds, not forsaking their own assembling together. That was the purpose in which they went to all those places. You know, what's amazing to me is, is that they went there for a specific reason. Now, often I hear folks tell me about how they can worship God on the golf course. They can worship God you know, do you go to church no, I, I you know, I worship God on the golf course. I worship God at the beach. I worship God blah blah blah, wherever. And, you know, when I, and I stop and I think about that, I go, now let me ask you, I mean, be, be honest about it for a second. I, I don't question or challenge that you can't worship and praise God, you know, on the golf course, at the beach, or driving down the road in your car, or at a restaurant, or wherever, praise God. I mean, we should always be continually giving thanks and praise to God, because that's something that comes from our heart. But the question that I have for you is this. What is the specific purpose in which you're going to the golf course? Is the specific purpose to praise and worship God Or is a specific purpose to play golf? There's a huge difference between the two. When I go to the golf course, I go to play golf. Try to play golf. (laughs) Give it my best. There's a specific purpose. And the and the apostles and the believers here in Jerusalem got together for a specific purpose. And their purpose was to praise God. Their purpose was to study the Word of God. Their purpose was to encourage one another by their fellowship together and stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking their assembling together. Their purpose was was to do all of those things. And what's amazing to me is, is that we need to recognize and understand that there is a specific purpose for God's people as we gather together. And the book of Acts is a wonderful book to help us to get back to the basics or the foundation. We are to get together to praise God. We're get-together to pray to God. We're get-together to encourage one another through our assembling. And we certainly are get-together to circle around the Word of God and learn about the truths of God so that we not only understand Him better, but we understand what He expects of us that we can apply in our lives. That's the purpose of all of it. The other thing that I think about on a regular basis is when I go golfing, I usually take golf clubs. And there's a reason for that. You need them when you go golfing. When you go skiing, I assume you take skis. When you go surfing, you take a surfboard or whatever. I mean, a kneeboard, whatever you want to do. I mean, when you go boating, you take a boat. Thus, the term boating. You know what I'm saying? You follow where I'm going with all this? When you go shopping, you take cash, check or charge. I mean, there are things that you take with you for specific purposes. Now, I will challenge you to consider something. When you come to a Bible study, it would behoove you to bring a Bible. Yes, that would be a wonderful thing. If you do not have a Bible and you cannot afford one, one will be appointed to you. And in fact, on a very serious note, how many people here need a Bible? Raise your hand. Oh, yeah, okay. Now, now, the one that does not have a Bible with you, you're not listening to me. Okay, don't raise your hand. But at the back when you leave, there's extra Bibles. If you can't afford a Bible, just mention it to Linda, and we'll get you a Bible. I mean, I'm so committed to the fact that we need a Bible study, we'll get Bibles to study the Bible. Otherwise, it's really hard to do that. Uh, you know, and another thing. <laughs> and, well, just one last thing. And and, and and that's this. Why would you come to gather together and sleep? <laughs> now I, I'm, I'm very serious about this. Why would you get out of a comfortable bed that you were sleeping very soundly and enjoying immensely? Why would you get out of bed? and get dressed, and drive a distance, and find a parking spot to come in to fight for a seat that isn't all that comfortable to sit in it and sleep. What in the world would you do that for? God's not fooled by that, and neither am I nor the people around you. Why would you get up and go through all of that to come and sleep? That amazes me or to come and clip your nails. I heard that, and so some of you, you heard that. You hear, cheek, cheek, cheek. I was like, what in the world is that? Or to fondle the person that you're next to, rubbing their back and rubbing their hair and giving a massage. If you want to give them a massage, find a specific place to give them a massage. If you want to do your nails, find a specific place to do your nails. If you want to sleep, don't get out of bed. (laughs) Sleep. But when you come to study the Bible, be prepared to study the Bible. That's what I get out of the fact that they went to a specific place for the specific purposes of focusing on God and Him first. It's amazing to me the stuff that you see, I'm going to talk a little bit about that in a little bit more because I'm not quite done with that. <laughs> but that's why they got together. Notice also the people that were there. And that's really important to understand. Notice the people that were there. We see the 11 remaining apostles that are there and they're identified for us in verse 13. It says that the 11 remaining apostles were joined by the women. Notice that says the women, anytime in Scripture the women are mentioned as a specific group of women. Mary Magdalene was one of the women that were present. Uh, Mary and Martha certainly were there. Mary, the wife of Clopas, was there. Salome was there. Among others, there were specific women that were there. Also notice that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers were there. These were Jesus' biological siblings, the natural children of Mary and Joseph. fact, the Bible very clearly teaches that Joseph and Mary had normal marital relationship after the birth of Christ. He kept her a virgin until, the Bible says in Matthew 1.25, until after the birth of Jesus. They are identified very clearly. In fact, the names given them in Mark 6, 3 were James and Hosea, uh, uh, Joseph and jo- Judas and Simon. Now, James and Judas, or Jude, were very prominent in the early church. We're going to learn that James, the half-brother of Jesus, was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Judas also, or Jude, wrote the epistle that's after his name. It's important that we recognize and understand that because there's a lot of distortion as to human relationships and how they apply to our relationship with God. And in fact, at one point, John 7, 5 says that even his brothers were not believing in him. There was a point not long before the resurrection where even his own siblings did not believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Savior of the world. The Bible says that perhaps in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, when Jesus appeared to James, that perhaps James went back to his family and convinced them that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead as he proclaimed. And that they had all come at that point to faith in Jesus Christ. So we see that, we recognize and understand it. But I want to take a moment to, um, and I think it's appropriate at this point, to set the biblical record straight because there's been much myth and legend and uh, faulty teaching over the, uh, over the centuries in connection with Mary the mother and Jesus. And in fact, what's interesting, in contrast to the inor- in the inordinate uh, devotion uh, to her in some religious systems, the Bible never exalts her beyond the point of which I will just explain in a second. In Mark 3:31 and 32, Mary, along with Jesus' brothers, tried to assume some special privilege and based on their earthly relationship with them. They were outside, there was a large crowd, it would be like coming in and you can't find a seat, and, Jesus, and, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and, and her sons were way in the back. And there was a point where they sent message up to Jesus that, hey, you know what, your mother and your brothers are way in the back, you know, kind of sending. Can, can you send for them or bring them up front or find a place for them? And here's what his response was. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? He says, and looking about on those who were sitting around him, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. He says, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Mark chapter 3, 33 through 35. Another particular point, women were trying to give Mary a very special preference. And here's what his response was in Luke 11:27 and 28. It says, and it came about while he had said these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you were nursed. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. You know, it's important because Mary was a woman of singular virtue where she never would have been chosen to be the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we understand and she deserves respect and honor for that position and that role. However, she was a sinner who exalted God as her Savior in Luke 1, 46 through 50. She was a humble bondservant that said, Lord, I, I, I need your mercy and I cry out for forgiveness. And to offer prayers to her... Or to worship her or to put her on the same pedestal or level of Jesus Christ is heresy according to the Bible. See, Mary never even claimed that position. She claimed to be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Even though as his earthly mother there could be some confusion, there was no confusion at all in her heart as to who he was and his identity. And it's important because we live in a world where there's many religious systems out there that teach us or try to tell us that Mary is on the same level as far as Jesus. But the Bible clearly teaches there's only one mediator between God and man. You don't have to go to Mary in order to find forgiveness from Jesus Christ. We can go directly to Him. We have direct access to Him. We can boldly approach the throne of grace, those who have come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The Bible says we can boldly approach the throne of grace so that we can find uh, mercy at our time of need. There are no other mediators between God and man. You don't have to go to another person. You don't have to go to any human being that ever lived or anyone that's living today that you and your own heart can go directly to the God who created you to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's important. And it's also important as we study the book of Acts and in the New Testament, if Mary was to be given any role beyond the one that she had already had, then it would be clearly taught throughout the book of Acts and throughout the rest of the epistles. But she is not mentioned any other person and this is the last mention of her in the scripture and there's a reason for that because there's no other name in fact under heaven by which man can be saved other than Jesus Christ You know, no one but God is worthy of praise and worship. And we need to recognize and understand that. And I know that's difficult for people that come from certain backgrounds because they don't like to hear that. But remember, we're here to study the Bible, that God's Word is truth and His his truth sets us free from all the lies and the deception that are out there. I don't question or challenge why people taught that, what their reasons were, what their motivation was. All I'm here to do is set the record straight and tell you this, that only God is worthy of worship and only God is worthy of praise. And there's and this in this diverse group of people present in the upper room the Bible tells us were continually of one mind they were united in their understanding that Jesus alone is the exalted Lord that Jesus alone is the resurrected savior and they were all equal recipients of his mercy and his grace they were no longer arguing over who would be the greatest among them Mary understood her role his half-brothers understood their role his sisters understood their role and every believer in that upper room were continually devoted in one mind united in mind that they were all equal recipients of the grace of God found in Jesus Christ and that's important that we get that straight because there's no other name it's highly exalted because of what Jesus did on the cross the Bible says he was highly exalted and given a name above every other name that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he's Lord to the glory of God There's no other name given under heaven by which man can be saved than that of Jesus Christ. There's no other mediator to go to between God and man but the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to recognize that, understand that, and put him exactly as God placed him, highly exalted. And there's no other person on the face of the earth that deserves even equal mention or equal time with Jesus Christ. You know, we talk about equal access, you know, with the politicians and you know, and 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 all the elections. And it's like, well, if you give so many, so much time to one person, so much time to another person. Let me tell you something: Jesus Christ gets all the time, nobody else. And as they were together, they were also together in prayer. And it's critical that we understand that all those together in the upper room were of one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer. With one mind, they were expressing the spiritual unity that characterized the early fellowship of believers. They were continually devoting, the Bible says, and it's a very strong expression denoting persistence in prayer. Let me clarify something here. They were not praying to receive the Holy Spirit. They were not praying to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told them you are to wait and not many days from now you will receive the power of God, the dynamite of God promised by God from the Father. You will receive the Holy Spirit. He never told them and He's never told anybody that we've got to pray for the gift or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it's important that we recognize and understand it. And next time we're together, we're going to look at that in great detail. They were not praying for that which God never instructed them to pray. They waited for the coming of the Spirit, but they didn't pray to receive the gift of the Spirit because that wasn't necessary. Whether they prayed or didn't pray, it was still going to happen because it was an unconditional promise of God. There's no sense sometimes when we think about it, there's no sense praying for things that God says are going to take place because we can count on Him, trust Him. We don't have to convince Him. He's going to do exactly what it is that He says He's going to do. We don't have to keep bugging Him and asking Him for it. In fact, if anything, He told Him to wait, and it's like, just wait, and I'm going to fulfill what I told you. So the question is, well, what are they praying about? There are a whole bunch of other things to pray about. Think about it from a practical standpoint. Why do any of us pray? Think about it. Jesus was no longer physically present with them to have a conversation The only way that they could communicate with Him was what? Through prayer. They would pray. Jesus taught them often about prayer. In John 17, we see His prayer and and, and the role model that He gave us about praying to God, praying to the Father. The Father hears our prayers. Of those who have come to faith in Christ, the Bible is very clear that He hears all of our prayers. He hears us. They were praying because that was their means of communicating with God. That's the same reason that we pray today. They were praying probably that he would come again. Even John in the book of Revelation, the very last words of the book were, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. They were praying for Jesus to return because he had already told them when he returns he's going to establish the kingdom that was long promised to Israel. So there are a whole bunch of things they could be praying about. Praying for direction, praying for God's will, praying for strength, praying for encouragement. Uh, Man, there's a lot of stuff that each one of us find in our daily lives that we certainly could be praying about. And it's a huge subject in the book of Acts, specifically as it relates to man's plans and God's directions. And there's no doubt, as we'll see, that they prayed for God's leading because we're going to see exactly an example of it here shortly in the replacement of Judas. But think about these as just examples of prayer in the book of Acts. The believers prayed for guidance in making decisions. Acts chapter 1, which we're going to see. They prayed for courage in Acts 4. Stephen prayed as he was being stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. Peter and John prayed for the Samaritans in Acts 8. Saul of Tarsus prayed after his conversion in Acts 9. Peter prayed before he raised Dorcas from the dead in Acts 9. Cornelius prayed that God would show him how to be saved. Peter was on the rooftop praying when God told him how to answer Cornelius' prayer, indicating not only did he hear the prayer of Cornelius, but he heard the prayer of Peter asking God, how am I supposed to explain to him what it is he wants?" Me to know God heard them all. The believers in John Mark's house prayed for Peter when he was in prison. In fact, the irony of all that, while well, he was they were praying for Peter in prison to be released. The angel of the Lord came, opened the jail cells, and, and he was released. He went to the house where they were praying, knocked on the door, they looked out, saw him, slammed the door shut because they were praying that God would release Peter from prison. Can't be Peter, we're praying God would get you out of prison. Must be a ghost. No, I mean, it's just, and you go on and on and on and on. Prayer is huge. It's, just, it's a great lesson for us today of the importance of prayer. It's a thermometer in the thermostat of the local church for the spiritual temperature either goes up or down depending on those who are committed to prayer. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, said this, prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge to Satan. And in the book of Acts, we'll see that prayer accomplishes exactly all of those things. The for you is this. Should this not encourage us to become more consistent and diligent in our prayers? You know, I thought about Daniel. Daniel was a man who had a unique countenance that God had given him. So the world, when they looked at him, were attracted to him because there was something different about him. I thought about the message several weeks ago about being light and salt in the world and how there should be something attractive about our lives as believers that people would come to and say, what is it that you know that obviously I don't know? What is it that you can share with me? And there's something attractive about that. I like it. My business partner said, man, he goes, you know what, I can't put salt on any of my food without thinking about the idea of sprinkling salt in the world. Said, man, you know what, that's exactly the message that we all need to get of just sprinkling salt in the world, making sure that every opportunity that we have, we just share the message that's been entrusted us in a way that people are attracted to it to ask us what it is that's going on. The whole idea of prayer, Daniel had a specific room and a specific time of day. And in fact, it was because of his his persistent and consistent prayer life that those who were in opposition to him were able to arrest him because they came up with a trumped law that no one could ever pray to any other god but the one they established. And they knew that Daniel prayed every day, three times a day, the same time, in the same room, facing, facing Jerusalem, and he prayed to his God. And they arrested him because of his consistency in prayer. But you know what? He never changed or compromised even when he understood that that law because there's times where we must obey God rather than man. And he was willing to pay the price. He didn't rebel. He didn't fight authority. He went quietly and and submissively to prison knowing that he was in the hands of God. But he would never turn from that. And so as I thought about that and, and challenge you or consider you to challenge, we need to become people who have a specific place for the specific purpose of prayer. To be diligent and consistent. All of the small groups that meet, I would challenge you to make prayer an integral part of the reason that you get together. To pray for one another. To pray for God's leading. To pray for God's direction. To obviously study the Word of God. I, like I said before, and I'll continue to say it until God takes me out of here, and that's this, that we do not have enough time set aside for the study of the Word of God. We can't set enough time aside to study God's Word. And so I would challenge you to study the Word of God, to pray together, to encourage one another and stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You know, it's hard to do it in a huge room like this or a huge assembly like this, but it can take place in small individual groups, people that are committed to get together for the specific purpose of prayer. You know, typically what i found, and I've been guilty of it myself, is that we get together, you have a Bible study. What do we have? We have a one-minute prayer at the beginning, a one-minute prayer at the end. And a Bible study in the middle. And it's, you know, where and when do we specifically spend time just to pray? One minute prayer to meal. How often do we spend time in prayer? And the question I have is this if prayer is so integral, a part of our lives and our walk with God as believers, then why don't we spend more time doing it? Because it's like everything and anything. The things that we say are important to us really aren't if our actions don't back it up. Say whatever you want. I love you, honey, you're important to me, but you know what? If your husband's never around, if your wife's never there, if they're not practically meeting those needs and demonstrating it in a practical manner in which you can see it, words don't mean anything. I love you, Lord, I really do, but Jesus said if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. It's easy to say I love God, It's hard to demonstrate our love for God when we obey His commandments to the point where we may have to pay a price for our obedience. It's easy to say I have convictions. It's easy to say I have beliefs. But until those beliefs are put on the line and there's no price to be paid for those, you know what, anybody can say that. But when there's a price to pay for obedience, then you know what's really in your heart. Because I love God first with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I'll put Him first before everything else. So anyway, at some unspecified point in time, if you look at verse 15... Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons were together, which shows that it was a pretty big upper room that they were meeting in. It was a home that had a huge room that was large enough. And the second floor of homes in that particular area, the way they were designed, were for purposes of general meetings. And there was a large home that they met in that was a large enough room that could accompany at least 120 people that were in that room. So we see the place where they met, we see the people that were there, we see the, the prayers that they were offering, and at one point in time, during this meeting and it doesn't say exactly when Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons, and he spoke concerning a specific issue that he wanted to address. And the issue that he wanted to address was the suicide of a disciple. He wanted to address the suicide of a disciple. And it says in verse 16, Brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his portion in this ministry. The joy of those who gathered together was tempered by one sad reflection of pain that they all experienced mutually. And that was the pain that came and was associated... With the with the um, the defection or the betrayal of one of the, of one of them, of one of that inner circle of men that God had chosen, that He would betray Jesus. And the reason that this is so important is because. Jesus had already told them in Matthew 19, 28. He promised the apostles this. He said, you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now notice what he said. He had been teaching them about the kingdom of God. Jesus is coming back. He's going to establish a kingdom. What he had said to them is this. When I come back and establish my kingdom, you will sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, he said that generally to the 12 that were there. The assumption would have been at that time that the 12 of us are going to be in that position of authority and leadership when the kingdom of God is established on the earth. Now, they had a problem and they were probably praying about this as one of the things that they prayed about. Lord, Help us to understand how this scripture is going to be fulfilled if 12 of us are going to be sitting on the thrones to judge the 12 tribes of Israel and one of us is no longer here, one of us was a traitor, we're really confused. Are you saying that Judas still is in a position where he's going to be one of us? Or does he need to be replaced? We don't completely understand this at this point. Help us to understand it. And notice that Peter... Anytime there's confusion, clarity comes in when we turn to the Word of God. Whenever we're confused in our lives, whenever I've been confused in my life, it's amazing when I turn to the Word of God that God's clarity takes care of the confusion. Now, the confusion may still exist if I choose not to be obedient to the Word of God because I don't like what it clearly says to do. But... If I choose to be obedient and submit my will to God's will, it's amazing how when we're obedient to God, all the confusion goes away and clarity is ushered in. So they turned to the word of God, and that's exactly what Peter did. Look what he said. Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled. So there's no confusion as we search the scriptures and find exactly what it is that God's doing what he's up to, what his plan is, what his program is. You know, we're planning our ways, but God's directing our steps, and so we're very clear, clearly following. He said, Brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. One of the things the Bible teaches over and over again is that God's Word is true, and what He predicts must certainly come to pass. It will happen exactly as He says that it will. The prediction of God... By the way, another real... Sp- Solid reason to believe in Jesus Christ and to believe in the Bible is fulfilled prophecy. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago one of the reasons that I've came to faith in Christ is because the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is overwhelming that if you want solid evidence to support your belief system, look at the evidence that's available for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you know what? That in and of itself is enough to cause a person to fall on their knees and believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The predictive prophecy of the Bible is incredible. 800 years, 1,000 years, 1,200 years in many cases, before the actual events took place, God foretold that they'd happen just as they happened. You think of the reality here where he says he foretold it by the mouth of David concerning Judas. As we look at this and realize it and understand it, our God is in the heaven, he does whatever he pleases. Uh, Isaiah added this, he said that uh, I will accomplish my purposes for my good pleasure. There's probably no clearer description of inspiration found anywhere in the scripture than that particular verse that says that David foretold by the Holy Spirit. I heard, I've heard i had people say to me, why would you believe the Bible is just written by a bunch of men? I say, no, you don't understand. The Bible wasn't written by a bunch of men. The Bible was written by many different human authors, but they were all inspired by the Spirit of God. The Word of God tells us very clearly. He says that, uh, that men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God in 2 Peter 1.21. Peter reassured his hearers that despite Judas' betrayal and acting as a guide to those who arrested Jesus, that God's word was being fulfilled. That was his plan. And God used Judas and his betrayal to fulfill his plan even though Judas had the free will to choose whether or not he would betray Jesus. God's purposes will always come to be. In fact, if you go here and look at that, he was counted among them. It says he was accounted among us and he received his portion in this ministry, verse 17. Then it says that now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. It became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language, that field was called the field of blood. Here's a very sobering truth as we go through and read this. And here's the fulfillment. It says in Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no man dwell in it. And it goes on and says, in his office, let another man take. So that was the prophecy that had been predicted through the mouth of David, occurring exactly as it did, and now they're in a position to understand what they were to do next. But before we look at that, I want to share something with you that is very sobering truth and a very sobering reality. Judas was never a believer. Judas was never saved from the condemnation of God, the ultimate judgment of God, Judas was never one who put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. And it's important to understand that because some would think, well, those 12 that were there are the 12 that will sit in judgment of the tribes of Israel, and that's not it at all, and we're going to see that in a second. 11 of those men will sit on those on those 12 but there will be a 12th one that will be selected in a moment and it's important that we realize that because Jesus said this in John 6 he says did i myself not choose you the 12 and yet one of you is a devil now he meant judas the son of simon for he one of the 12 was going to betray him Jesus knew that. He knew that all along. There was no surprise. Although you remember when he said that, all the disciples were like, is it me? Is it you? Who is it? I mean, they were like, who's the betrayer? They didn't know. But Jesus knew that one of them would betray him. Judas was placed among the apostles because it was essential for him to betray Jesus. God didn't force Judas into betrayal against the man's will. He did so willingly. And it's important that we recognize that and understand that because there are many who say, you know what? Well, what difference does it make? God just does what he does anyway. And we, and we violate the specific teaching that God holds man responsible for our own decisions. And it's really important because, well, listen to this and let me share something here that, that troubles me when I consider the life of Judas. Judas represents to me probably the saddest life ever lived the greatest example of wasted opportunity in all of human history. He was in the rare position and the rare privilege of being among the 12 that were chosen by Jesus who spent almost three years with him, day and night, traveling with him, eating with him, drinking with him, uh, sleeping together, out together, spending an innumerable number of hours with him. And yet Judas... Followed Jesus for one reason. For himself. Judas followed Jesus for what was in it for him. And if you challenge that or question that, let me give you a couple examples. Judas was excited, as the others were, that Jesus was going to establish his kingdom upon the earth. Judas was just as excited about them that when Jesus established his kingdom that he'd want have one of the positions of authority and there was something in it for him. But we know that his heart was far from God. Because there was an occasion where a woman took a very expensive perfume and broke it and poured it over Jesus's feet and over his head and anointed him. And Judas, in anger, looked at her and said, Don't you realize what could have been done with that money? We could have used that money to help the poor. But God says, For all of us, don't buy that. Because God knew his heart, and he was a greedy an evil person in his heart. He wanted the money for himself, and he thought it a considerable waste that somebody would anoint Jesus with a very expensive perfume that he could have taken the money and did what he wanted to do for it. Unfortunately, Judas was also the treasurer of the twelve. And so we also have learned that he was also one of those treasures that you don't want to have in your company. The guy was a wicked person in his heart, and Jesus knew that, and the Bible exposes that. He was a person who did what he did outwardly, but inwardly there was another set of motivation. And I want to share this with you because the privilege that he had, many of us have, and that is this. Many of us come from Christian homes, quote unquote. Places where a mother or father have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Places where you can see the Christian life lived out. Places where the Word of God is held at a high standard and truth, right from wrong, is taught and distinguished. You've come from a place of privilege where you understand truth about sin and judgment, heaven, hell, that freedom comes as we choose to repent of our sins and respond with faith to the finished work of Christ. You've heard the message, but you haven't received it in your heart. You come to church because you want people outwardly to see that you're going to church. But inwardly, your hearts are far from God. Jesus said to the religious leaders, he said, oh yeah, you know what? On the outside, you're all whitewashed. In fact, he called them whitewashed as they whitewash a sepulcher in a cemetery. They clean it all up and they paint it and it looks good on the outside, but you know all that's inside are nothing but dead, filthy, rotten bones. He says, on the outside, you look good to the world, but on the inside, your hearts are far from God. That's where those who were saying, but Lord, Lord, didn't we you know, uh, cast out demons in your name and do all these good works? And he says, hey, you know what? You didn't do any of that in my name. Because you were, you didn't even know me. I didn't know you. You were far from me. I see people play that game all the time. I, I counsel people, talk to people. They play this game. They say, Well, you know what, I want to get married. Oh, really? Well, who who's you're gonna marry? Is that person a believer? First Corinthians six, man, you don't want them to be unequally low yoke. You don't want them to go in a direction different than what God wants you to go. You certainly don't want to be disobedient to the word of God, but at the same time, you don't want to go in a direction where another person's gonna lead you away from God. Even Solomon was warned of that. As wise as he was, the wisest person outside of Jesus Christ ever to walk the face of the earth, God warned him and said, you know what? If you end up marrying women of other gods who believe in other gods and worship other gods, they're going to turn your heart from me. Some of us think we're wiser than Solomon, that we wouldn't be obedient to the word of God, but get back to it, the game that's played is this. Well, if I have to become a Christian so I can marry you, then okay, what do I got to do? Oh, pray prayer? What prayer is that? Well, this one. Just follow me in this. Pray this prayer. Okay, dear God, I'm a sinner, okay? And I believe Jesus died for my sins He rose from the dead. Amen. Okay, am I in now? Well, hello. You know, if, that, if, 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 that's, if, you're, if it's a sincere prayer between you and God, yes. If you're playing a game for human beings so that you look better or different or what? Accomplish what it is that you're trying to accomplish then the answer is, you have not come to faith in Christ and you don't know God and you're not a child of God who believes in His name. You're just as lost as you were before you uttered that stupid prayer that you try to use to fake people out so that now you can do what it is that you want to do. That's Judas. I see people, well, if you want to date me, then you've got to come to church with me. You know what? Let me tell you something. First of all, you'd be wise not to even go there because you don't know whether it's legitimate, true, or not. And all of us as parents sometimes are just as stupid and I am too myself sometimes. and You know, it's like, hey, well, here's the rules. Well, you know what? If a person's heart isn't right with God, they can play an outward game, but we're looking for evidence of life change. We're looking for the person who recognizes what the Bible says is true, that they are a sinner, and the evidence is there, and they receive that, and they, they recognize that. The person that says, you know what? I'm in deep trouble. But I'm glad that God sent Jesus Christ to die in my place. And at best of my knowledge, I I, I recognize Him as my Savior. I recognize He died for my sins. I recognize He rose from the dead. And, and, And the best of my understanding, I receive Him as my Lord and my Savior. Then there's life change. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, all things become new. It doesn't happen overnight, it doesn't happen all of a sudden, but I'll tell you what happens all of a sudden is that you are given the Spirit of God who teaches you the difference between right and wrong and guides you into all truth and reminds you of the things of Jesus. And then it's a matter of obedience, but I'll tell you what, the moment that I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior inside my life, I changed from the inside out. I wasn't immediately obedient in every area of my life that moment in time, but I'll tell you what, I'm a lot further along in my obedience than I was that day 20 some years ago, and I'm moving in a direction. That continually is submissive to the will of God. There is life change that takes place in the heart of a person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Judas had no life change, he had none. Judas felt bad, the Bible says. There was remorse, the Bible says. But there is a difference between remorse and repentance. We all feel bad for different reasons. Maybe you feel bad because you got caught. Maybe you feel bad because of the price that you're paying and the consequences. Maybe you feel bad because you lost something that you wish you'd still have. There's a lot of reasons to feel remorse. Judas felt remorse, but he didn't repent. And as a result, his remorse led him to hang himself. And, the Bible, you know, and there are people who go, well, a well, contradiction. Here's a contradiction. Because the Bible says that he hung himself but now I'm reading an Acts that he actually fell and his guts blew open. How do you reconcile all that? Easy. He hung himself, and then he fell. Tree broke, rope broke, something broke, and he fell, and he landed on the rocks below and his guts blew open. Poured forth, the Bible says. That's not a contradiction. It just completes the whole package. We have a better understanding of what exactly it is that took place. He says, let his homestead be made desolate, Let no man dwell in it. and his office, let it take by another man. Peter's using the most compelling proof of Scripture to reassure his hearers that Judas's defection and their choice of his replacement were all part of the plan of God, which we will close with this. The selection of a disciple. So now they know they're supposed to select another disciple, but they're not sure how to go about it. So they look at the word of God and says, it's therefore necessary that the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us. One of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they lay out the qualifications. And they say, okay, basically here's what it takes to be an apostle. You had to be with us from the very beginning. When Jesus was here on earth and he walked those three years and he taught with us, you were with us, you were one of us. And not only that, but you also saw the resurrected Christ And on top of that, the third qualification was that you would be chosen as we were by God Himself. And so as they prayed for God's knowledge, notice what they say. They went to Him and said, they prayed and said, Lord, You know the hearts of all men. I love that. You know what's so reassuring to me about that? Is that God knows my heart. And He knows whether in the sincerity of my heart and in my will that I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. He knows my heart. He knows your heart, which is a very comforting thing for those of us who are right before God or sincere in our relationship with God. We also know that He judges the secrets of men from our study in Romans. And I don't know about you, but for many of us, that's not a very comforting thought. But we know if we confess our sin, He's faithful to to forgive us and cleanse us from all of it. That's a comforting thought. It's a comforting thought that if you're here today and you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ and you're sincere, He knows your heart and and your willingness to surrender your life to Him. That's a comforting thought. While the rest of us may not even be sure for a long time until the evidence is there, that's a comforting thought to know that at that moment in time that you could be made right with God. See, God knows our hearts and He knew the hearts of the two men that were there that were equally qualified. You ever been in a position like that where you're trying to decide what to do and either direction is, is right before God? What do I do? I could go this way or that way. Neither one of them violate any scripture. Neither one of them are wrong before God. Either one of them could be a way that I go. What, what do I do? So You pray. You pray and you seek God's wisdom. Any any and every one of us that have challenging decisions to make in life, for us to know the will of God, all that we need to do is pray. To search the scriptures and pray and to seek God's direction. Man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Notice what it did. They prayed. Said, Lord, we know the hearts of all men. Show which one of these two that you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside. And here's another very sobering phrase to go to his own place. Man. Do you realize that there isn't a person that will be condemned for eternity in hell that hasn't chosen to go to his own place? That was his choice. I talk to people who say to me, well, at least when I go to hell... I'll be there with my friends and we'll party and it's going to be, you know, people I know. You go, what? Are you kidding me? You need to read more about hell if you think that's what you've got awaiting you. A place of weeping and torment, outer darkness, a sense of continual falling, separated from God and the presence of God and everything that's good. No hope to ever be able to change that. No second chances. No do-overs. No party in hell. That's a deception from the pit of hell itself, from Satan himself, that wants to trick people and deceive people into believing that it won't be all that bad. It will not only be all that bad and even more beyond our comprehension, just as heaven is all that good and even more beyond our comprehension there. He went to his own place, his own choosing. If you're here and you've heard the gospel that you're a sinner separated from God because of the sin nature that's within you and evidenced by the way you live your life, and you've heard that God loves you and he sent Jesus Christ to die in your behalf on the cross, that he rose him three days later to demonstrate that he's trustworthy and he is God, the Savior of the world, and you reject that message and you reject him, you are choosing to go to hell. Please don't make that choice. I can't think of anybody in the world that has harmed me enough that I would ever want to see someone go to hell. Please never utter to anybody, go to hell. There's nothing funny about that. That's a serious matter. Judas chose to go to his own place. God gives man the freedom to choose. I say choose Jesus and choose life see, Matthias was one of the two men. And the lots fell to him. Now, some of us are thinking, well, what's that mean? How did they discern God's will? Well, in the Old Testament, it was an approved way, so they followed Scripture, and they would take a couple of pebbles, and they would put a mark on one of the pebbles, and they would put it in a bag of some sort, and they would just shake it up, they prayed, God, you know what? Both of these men are equally pleasing to you. Both of these men fulfill the qualifications. And uh, we don't know which one to choose. So they cast lots. And the Bible says that was an approved way to discern the will of God. By the way, it's the last time you'll ever see that method used in Scripture. And that's important because when the Spirit of God comes, He knows the mind of God. We can go to Him and we can discern God's will and His direction in our life through the Scripture, through prayer, and through the leading of the Holy Spirit in our life. We'll talk more about that next time. But they cast lots. And the lot fell to Matthias. And you know what? And man's faith was, hey, if God didn't want Matthias to be the guy, then it would have went the other way. So you know what? That's good enough for us. Now they stepped out in faith and said, Lord, let's move on. Let's get your program going. Is that great? I know people that kill themselves trying to discern the will of God. Hey, it's very simple. Here it is. The word of God very clearly reveals the will of God. The Spirit of God, as we pray, discerns the mind of God and, and tells us the direction of God. And the bottom line is, once we get godly counsel, there's safety in a multitude of godly counsels. You have a group of people praying about something. you got a group of people searching the Word of God together. You come to a conclusion and God's Word is very clear and His will is revealed. Then you step out in faith and you trust God and you move forward. Now, it may not always turn out like you thought it was going to turn out, but it doesn't mean God's hand's not in it, and it doesn't mean that God's leading you. The problem with us is we always think that, you know, it has to turn out the way we want. I'll give you a great example. We'll close on this. I had a friend that played for the Rams for nine years, played the most miserable Rams teams that ever existed. At the end of those nine years, his contract was up, and he had a chance to make a choice to play somewhere else. You know what? Here it is. There's three or four teams that all wanted him to play up for them, and they looked at it. It's like, you know what? Is anything about any of these choices would be wrong before God? No, pray about it. Seek God's wisdom. Seek counseling. Seek you know, seek the Word of God. Follow the Spirit's leading. All of that. Finally, you come to a conclusion. You go, you know what? Out of all three, four teams, this is the team. As I talk to my wife, as I've got godly counsel, I've sought the Word of God and the will of God and the direction of God. I prayed about it. I have a peace that this is what God wants me to do. He signs with the New York Jets. They're Super Bowl favorites. Second game, their quarterback ruptures his Achilles. He's gone for the rest of the year. They end up going 9-7. The same year, the Rams won the Super Bowl. Now, here's our conversation. I must have misread something. You know, it's like, you know, is that really, did God really, God led you. It just didn't turn out like you thought it was going to turn out. But it doesn't mean that God's hand wasn't in it and that God's not trying to teach you something through all of it. And maybe God's just trying to teach you that, you know what, your life isn't going to be completely fulfilled by winning a Super Bowl, that you need to find your fulfillment and satisfaction in your relationship with the Lord. I don't know what the lesson is He's trying to teach you, but all I know is this. When you pray about something, you search the Word of God about something, you get a multitude of counselors, there's safety in that, and you follow God's leading in your life, and you step out in faith and you walk with Him. Guess what? His hand's in all of that. And that's how we discern the will of God. Man plans his ways, but but God directs. And man has to be willing to say, not my will be done, but yours. I'm following you. You know better than me what I need in my life. Father, thank you again for your word. We just thank you for this time that goes way too fast. But we just thank you that uh, we can grasp what we do today, that we can learn. God, I just pray for those who are here that they would make wise decisions as far as their final destiny. I pray for those who are here that are playing a game on the outside and our hearts are far from you, that they'd recognize the importance of knowing that you're a God who knows our hearts, you know our very motives and our thoughts. God, help us to become people that are pure in our intentions, that we're open and transparent. God, help us to become men and women who are committed to being prayer warriors, to be consistent and diligent in our prayer life. God, there's so many lessons that we learn from this meeting of of these believers at this time. Help us to walk away with just one or two that we can begin immediately to apply in our life. God, help us to become people who search Your your Word in the Scripture, that seek Your wisdom and guidance, that follow Your leading by the Spirit of God in our lives, His presence, and that seek a multitude of counselors. There's a safety in a multitude of godly counselors. God, and as uh, Your will is revealed to us, may we become men and women who step out in faith, trusting You, acknowledging You and Your directions. And we just thank You and praise You in Christ's name. Amen.